Monday, September 28, 2015, and this is episode 132 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell. Tonight we have a special episode that was recorded in Mr. Kellett's car on the way home from DerbyCon yesterday. And without further ado, we will join that now. So, we're heading home from DerbyCon, which means we're tired and hungover and our voices are shot. Yeah, I can finally talk again this morning. At breakfast, I, I met up with uh, Security Humor, and I could barely talk, but neither could he. So, <laughs> it's a funny story about him. I I used to work with we both used to work with him, right? And uh, knew him like he's in Atlanta, and I was following him for probably three years before I realized it was him. Which apparently is a, not a com or not an uncommon thing for him. Yeah, so that, you know, I felt dumb, but, you know. but uh, so we're passing Fort Knox for those who are playing, following along at home. Just saw the sign for Fort Knox. We're, we're not stopping. <sighs> All right. This time, it's true. So, uh, how was your derby? Uh, it was good. It, it um, I, I didn't get to go really to almost any talks. I think I made, I made it to two. But it was it was still great because I spent all the rest of the time actually talking with people. Yeah, I found that you are far more popular than I am. Well. People apparently, you're Jerry Bell? Oh, and you're that other guy. That's that's what I learned at, at Mr. <laughs> Con. Uh, no, it, it was excellent meeting up with tons of folks. And, and given from last year's Derby Con to this year, a lot more people um, knew of us, so we had a lot more fun chatting with a lot of cool folks and met a lot of really cool people. And uh, it, it almost—it was almost one of those too many folks to to even have quality time with, which kind of uh, was an awkward problem to have, um, but a good problem, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was a good time. I had a lot of of really great discussions with with people, so. Uh, look forward to next year. I, I know we've we've apparently are, are going to uh, you know potentially attend some other top, uh, conferences this next year. So yeah, I, a lot of people invited us to a lot of places. It's it's a matter of budget and time, um, but that'd be cool. And uh, you know we've talked about off air that maybe we need to kind of put together some material for us to kind of do live. So maybe we'll start working on that. Give it some glimpses of the, the, the live Andy and Jerry Roadshow. That's right. Kind of like Mythbusters, but not nearly as cool. No. Well, they do a live show, what I mean. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry. They got it. You know, we didn't even do our intro, by the way. Uh, we'll do that later. Okay, fair enough. It's the beauty of editing. It's true. So, so I'm currently driving and podcasting, which is probably illegal in Kentucky. So what did you think? 
I was great. Uh, I planned to go to eight talks. I went to one and a half. It was, you know, DerbyCon is always an excellent, excellent conference. It reminds me a lot of what DefCon was like maybe 15 years ago because I'm that old. Um, it's it's very small. It's very inclusive. Everybody is friendly and open. There's not a, a you know, a, a bad vibe to it or, or whatnot. And I uh, really enjoyed, you know, the hallway con and the bar con and the lobby con and the you know, meeting tons of, of cool people, meeting a lot of people in person who I knew on Twitter, who I'd never met in person. Um, I'm realizing that my, my picture on Twitter is not helpful for meeting people in person, so I've got to fix that, because it doesn't really show my face. It shows like a three-quarter profile view, and it, you know, you can't recognize me see, from that. See, there's your problem. Right there. I think the problem is I'm not nearly as interesting as you are. I think that's really oh, more, more, really? more of the problem. Okay. Because um, you're not a pilot or into shooting or anything like that, right? So what you're saying is I'm just too interesting? I intimidate people? I think that might be it. Wow. I thought about that. You're overwhelming. You know, we'll go with that. I think that's that's good. Um, There was a a lot of good talks. One thing I like about DerbyCon is they specifically have different tracks. uh, So there's not an overabundance of just red team talks or whatnot. So there's definitely a decent amount of blue team talks and most of them are, are going to be online so I plan to go back and catch some of them uh, recorded uh, so hopefully we'll get a chance to catch up on the talks that I wanted to see but I missed uh, but it is just a wonderful conference for meeting up with people and having great conversations and trying to solve the problems of the world and at least commiserating over our shared miseries there's not a lot of stunt hacking either, which was <laughs> it's true. Just kind of nice. It it still is, I think, pretty heavily red team slanted. But there were some, uh, what I heard, some really good blue team talks. I heard that uh, John Strain's blue team talk was really good. Nice. So I'm, I gotta I gotta go watch that when it comes out. It sounds interesting. Um, buddy of mine, buddy of mine, Dennis Koontz did one on. Uh, how to help, uh, basically, cops catch bad guys, uh, which apparently I did not get into because it was too busy. And then he uh, scolded me for not just sort of being obnoxious and forcing my way in. Uh, uh, but I guess went over really, really well. Well, a lot of people reviewed that. Um, he, he, uh, Dennis is also running aptdefender.com, which if you're looking for some defense against APTs, you should you should check that out. Yeah, he's, you can get certified. In you that. can. Yeah, he's starting to ship some certifications. It's like the certified advanced APT defender, or, uh, something like that. Yeah, or professional. Right. It's like it, it's C R A A P. I believe is the absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's important. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's a great time. I will tell you, I'm tired. Uh, I'm not as young as I used to be, uh, and I was not out to all hours of the evening like like many people. I witnessed many, 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 many awkward hugs by Jason Street. Uh, some really, some were very awkward. By the way. I, well, you know, you, you gotta like, like full lat, right, legs wrapped around, and I mean the whole. Yeah, well, you know that cop asked for it. <laughs> I, I ran into Brian Brake this morning, and he was looking kind of rough. Yes. <laughs> he he was tweeting a little bit that he was uh, he was rough. Yeah. We did a we did a big podcast mashup with like uh, three or four different podcasts. Which I think is probably going to be a Charlie Foxtrot to listen to. 
Yeah. If just does, have, have the appropriate, when, when I post it, just go into it with the appropriate expectation, right? Yeah. It's, it, it might, you know, it could be one to skip. It's really tough to put, you know, six podcasters in a room and try to have a, without a script, without a game plan, and try to have a, a conversation anybody can follow. It, it, it turns into uh, kind of... It, was, it, it basically went like this. Hey, let's go up to room 626. And, uh, okay, so now we're all here. What are we going to talk about? I don't know. Record. Right. Here we go. All right. all right, everybody get your contribution points. <laughs> don't get me wrong. It was really fun to do. I just, I fear that it's it's not going to have a lot of value once people listen to it because it's going to be a lot of people trying to talk over other people. And, um, but it's the first time we've ever done a podcast with an audience. That's very true. Uh, this is actually our second one. That's true. Yeah, we've, we've got we've got somebody in the backseat. Uh, Captive audience may or may not be a kidnap victim. We're not we're <laughs> not going to admit to anything. He still has all of his organs, as far as we're aware. By the way, this is a six-hour drive, so this will be a six-hour podcast. Yes. And, get, uh, sit back, get comfortable. Yeah, go get go get a, a, a snack. Sure. We'll wait. Okay, so you you're back? back. All right, good. So, what was uh, what was your highlight, Jerry? Um, you know, honestly, I, I think it was meeting people like you said, yeah. uh, that, that I have interacted a lot with and, and kind of gotten to be friends with on Twitter, meeting them in person. Um, and just, you know, uh, unfortunately it's very difficult to you know spend any amount of significant time with any one person, but it was just great to be able to, uh, you know, to have that face to face connection, um, uh, you know the the thing that I like generally about conferences, and I've said this before, is it puts me into a different mindset um, than I find myself normally in at, at work or at home, where you know just I, I, I have more uh, more energy about you know, creative energy, I guess. Sure. In terms of uh, of security, so uh, you know I had lots of lots of ideas and and things that I wrote down that I want to think more about. So I think I would say it's, it's really that, um, you know, I, the first time I went to DerbyCon, I went, I spent almost the entire time I was there in, in talks. Right. And to some extent, I kind of regret not doing that, but you know, it, the reason I wasn't in talks was, is because I was actually talking with, with people kind of one-on-one or, you know, in, in a, in a small group setting which is really very awesome. Yeah, I, I, I have the same sort of conflict of going to talks versus, uh, you know, being social or, or meeting up with people. And I eventually came to peace with it of the talks are online and these people aren't here every day. Exactly. Um, for those following along at home, we're now passing the Abraham Lincoln Birthplace National Historic Site uh, sign. And the right lane is about to end. All right. Yeah. So Just advice. so you know where we're at. Yeah. yeah. Exit ninety one. Uh, yeah, I definitely say that. I uh, it, it's it, it's a even though I'm kind of wiped out and tired, it definitely recharges me to go back and fight another day at, at work. Yeah, uh, I, I I will tell you it was it was interesting, and maybe it's like you know a confirmation bias kind of situation. Um, a lot of the a lot of the people that that I met. Uh, who listen to the show 
came up and, and thanked me for uh, thanked us or, or well I mean, when they came much. up to me they would thank me if they came up to you I, I assume they would thank you no they thanked you actually tell Jerry oh. I said <laughs> anyway thanked us for the blue team yeah. perspective right we did hear that a lot that we're we are one of the few focuses on on the blue team and and apparently there's there's a lot of you know kind of market want for that right now there's a market need yeah yeah so uh, it was also interesting that that we met a lot of people in very 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 different industries uh, listening who listen to us yeah all over the spectrum right uh, which is cool but again kind of uh, I'm always curious how folks find find the show uh, and you know again never expected as many folks to listen as they do and it's sort of humbling and Flatter, sure. But uh, let's see what else. Uh, did a lot of lock picking. That was one thing that, uh, in fact, last year was the first year I finally started to figure out lock picking. I think thanks to you, yep. uh, and even entered a contest, a blind lock picking contest, uh, which I uh, uh, came in second out of three folks, and probably uh, eighteen out of twenty-four. But, but you're not only blindfolded; you're also handcuffed, are you? That's true. Yes. Yeah, uh, which you know, some people out there may uh, may enjoy I, that visual. I don't know. I'm yeah. not judging. They had the pink fuzzy stuff on it, so it's true. I I uh, I found that I can in the locks that actually we had were not that tough. They're a type of locks that I've picked many times, but doing it blindfold for the first time under a clock is really tough. Yeah. Uh, and my game plan went the hell in a hurry. Uh, I had everything kind of laid out the way I wanted, and I had uh, I had uh, a key for uh, a little a little kind of hideaway key for the. Sorry, I got to merge over here. Somebody's coming up quick behind me. Uh, a little key for the handcuffs, but I could not find the keyway. Uh, so I was fumbling with that, and I gave up on that. And then I started working on locks. And trying to figure out which way pins are going and then getting my tools aligned in there was a lot tougher than I thought. And then one tool went flipping out of my hands. I just gave up on that and found a backup tool. And it was uh, it was interesting. I, I may have to, you know. But you of, did that, you know. That's I, got, I, I popped one lock. Yeah. So in five minutes. So I Blindfolded. Blindfolded. In handcuffs. So I, yeah. you know. One, uh, in the first round, uh, some kid, I think he was like 10, did six. I was like, holy cow. So, um, what I learned is it's a very different skill set. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd never, I've never even tried handcuffs before. Uh, let, let me be clear. I've never tried to lockpick handcuffs before while they were on my wrists. So that was a new, new experience. Uh, I mean, you've always had to take them off other people when you've uh, had them locked up. No comment. Not like, going to comment. Like, like that time in Vegas, right? I'm, your mom told you about that, huh? So, um, but yeah, it's great. Derby Con's great. Uh, you know, I, I hear that they may be expanding it. They want to perhaps expand into, this is a rumor, unconfirmed, uh, but I believe it's fairly well talked about that they are looking at expanding into the Marriott next door of the Hyatt and increasing the amount of tickets and such sold. Yeah. Which, um, you know, it's not like there's a 
you know, if only there was a convention center across the street. Oh, wait, there yes. is. <laughs> um, which, I'm, a, I'm of a double-edged mind, right? I like that it is a smaller conference. But I don't want it to turn into the ticketing situation of Schmookon, which is yeah. the tickets sell out in 18 seconds. And I'm not exaggerating, you know, if that. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, Schmoo is an awesome conference, but the logistics of getting tickets for Schmoo are really frustrating to me. Uh, so I, I think it took three weeks, two weeks or something, for DerbyCon tickets to sell out. So, you know, that tells me in general, most folks, if they want to go, can go. Uh, there's also a massive amount of ticket resale that goes on uh, as people buy tickets and then they find out they can't go and tickets are allowed to be transferred. So right. uh, it feels to me like if you want to go to DerbyCon, you can go, but they you know, they do have a cap on the number of people. So expanding you know, gives more people the opportunity to go, I guess, but there's also a cultural aspect you want to be careful not to, not to ruin. Yeah, I... I... I think, I think if you were to play it out over a number of years, you know, the first DerbyCon didn't sell out until you know, shortly before the show, and then the second one, you know, I think like a month or two before the show, and the third one I think sold out in June. Last, I think last year, knows this one. I don't remember. I'm losing track. I'm tired. Um, anyway, point is. They're selling out faster and faster and faster, and yeah. I suspect, you know, if you if you fast forward a couple of years, it could potentially be a day or two that it sells out, uh, even maybe even shorter if they don't open it up a little bit because it is a good show, and you know, it, it is uh, good shows are going to be successful and draw people, and this is just kind of the inevitable. Uh, you know, you're going to have one problem or the other, right? You're going to be too big or you're going to sell out in 30 seconds. Yeah, and I, and I certainly don't want to be, like, inclusive, like, oh, only the cool people could go, right? Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say. But, um, you know, the other thought I had is I would encourage folks, if you have something you want to say, don't be intimidated about trying to give a talk. Yeah. Uh, especially at Derbycon. It's... It's a very friendly environment. Aside from the, you know, sort of um, <laughs> what they call icing, which is, <laughs> I guess, a thing uh, where Dave Kennedy or others may interrupt your talk to force you to drink some sort of yeah, not war- very warm Smirnoff ice, right? Which seems really bad. Uh, which is kind of funny, but at the same time, if you're in the middle of, like of a of an important thought, it can be disruptive. But anyway, aside from that. Um, I think it's a really friendly environment to get your feet wet in in terms of presenting. Yeah, they have their they have their stable talks, which are like uh, fifteen or twenty minute. Yeah, long talks. Good good opportunity to get some practice, and yeah. it's a smaller audience too. That's true. The other thing that's funny is there's yeah you know, there's a fairly sizable infosec community in Atlanta, and I run into people here from Atlanta who I know in Atlanta, but I never see in Atlanta. But I see them here, so right. it's like we should try to maybe meet up in our own state. Yeah, I, I've talked to a number of people, and we really need. If, if no one else is going to be the catalyst, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to step up and do something. Because <laughs> we're not busy enough. Totally, <laughs> totally. Um, so anyway, so we before before we started recording, we were talking about pen testing, 
Yeah. Wanna, you want to talk about pen testing? Uh, sure, sure. You want to frame frame it up or like? I yeah. We were talking about the value of pen testing. Right. So so, I think we were coming at it from a couple of different ways, and um, you know I so the, the this could be a, a meandering conversation. The way I brought it up, <laughs> like most of our conversations. Well, true, true. The way I brought it up is. Uh, I, I observed that a number of the talks at DerbyCon, uh, of course, I didn't actually get to see them, so, you know, potentially they actually uh, addressed my Allegedly. concerns, all right? Uh, anyway, the, the the talks in the name have you know, some derivation of winning, right? So how to, how to, uh, how to stop losing at InfoSec and, and win, and, or can we, can we stop losing and win, and... Uh, winning, or lo- sorry, losing battles and winning the war, and, and those kinds of uh, you know of, of concepts. And the thing that struck me as I was thinking about that is, you know, how, what's winning and losing? So winning is where you succeed over your opponent, Jerry, and losing is where they they. Succeed. But on what? But on what timeline? I mean, it, so it's it's a much it's a much different. No, perspective it, from a from an attacker's perspective because they can win. I mean, it's it's very it's very deterministic if they win. And you know, if you end the day when you go home at night, did you win? Right. Were you lucky? <laughs> and and if you did have a breach, which seems fairly inevitable, uh, did you lose? Yes, exactly. Uh, you don't go home. I mean, most companies when you have a a breach or you get hacked, you don't pack up your stuff and go home and. Right. I mean, some maybe over the long term, but, but yeah, but it's it's not like okay, well, you know, they got root, we're done, shut it down. It's yeah, you're right. It's uh, winning and losing in terms of, of infosec. Uh, I think is a odd phraseology, but it is one that you know speaks to defenders seem to be always at a disadvantage. The perception, right. And so I think a lot of people are, are trying to say, okay, how can we get better at defense? And using the concepts of winning and losing, you know, just kind of speaks to human psychology fairly easily. But I agree with you. It's it's not a very precise nomenclature because, um, you know, as many people have said, uh, defenders have to be right all the time. Attackers only have to be right once. But that's kind of not true because we can survive... Um, as defenders, we could survive not being right, and the game doesn't end. It, it's a continuous right. effort. Right. So we go on. We we come to work the next day and we clean up the mess and right and, and try to get better. From it. Yeah. Um, so in, in my mind, it's more you know the goal is is to enable business and reduce risk to an acceptable level, or at least inform about risk to an acceptable level. Can't reduce risk to zero, which seems to be what winning is for some people at InfoSec to reduce risk to zero. So you cannot reduce risk to zero, which means you also cannot reduce the likelihood of a breach to zero. Right. Uh, so it's more about finding that right balance, which is constantly changing. So I don't know. It's it's a weird concept, and I'm probably too tired to be very articulate around it. But but you know, just just being in business, period, requires taking risks. Yeah. And and I, I think um, 
think it's myopic and naive to think that we're going to be able to address all IT risk. Yeah. And and so I think the the issue, as we've talked about in the past, is being able to clear, clearly articulate, I guess, identify and articulate what the risks are in a in a meaningful and useful way. As best we can. Right. Uh, you know, we have finite resources as well. Yeah. So so the so that kind of that conversation kind of meandered into pen testing, right? Because pen testing is intended, you know, for most people to to try to find the way attackers are going to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I guess going back to the whole winning and losing kinds of uh, of concepts, a lot of pen testers. And I'm not saying all pen testers, right? But a lot of pen testers, for whatever reason, because of the the structure of the agreement or or whatever, you know, they'll find the they'll find a way in. Right. Yeah, it's not a holistic audit. It is a this is my goal. I found a way in, and typically for lots of reasons, they may not look further. Right. Uh, they 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 are basically focused on can I pop a box to a certain level or a series of boxes uh, and you know so great you find one way in that's helpful and you remediate that one way in it doesn't mean that that host that was audited or attacked is now secure that that one particular avenue of attack may be closed but others are certainly present and, and I think some people forget that and, and so we've got the need for pen testing kind of built into some of compliance now and some regulatory environments and you know people look at it as a best practice to get an annual pen test and I do think they're valuable but I think people forget all the caveats around them they usually have artificial constraints uh, that, that real attackers don't have uh, they're usually point in time tests um, now I do think having your own red team is incredibly valuable and doing pen tests are valuable it, it can show viscerally to, to executives or those in denial about security issues that, yeah, we really have a security issue here. Um, and it can drive some of that agenda. But I, I kind of like to think of a pen test as just one more input vector for vulnerability management overall. So, you know, pairing that with vulnerability assessments and threat intelligence and monitoring for zero days and all that kind of jazz, um, you know, all comes together. But I do think focused, targeted pen testing is very useful. But the other thing I would say is that pen testing or a penetration test is such a broad term that means a thousand different things to a thousand different people. It it is generally accepted as somebody trying to simulate the activities of a hacker or an attacker and and breaking into a system and subverting that system. But the skill set, the capability, the focus, the experience, and the methodologies are all highly varied from pen tester to pen tester. Yeah. And, you know, from, from that perspective, I've been wondering if we need a way to, we need a more organized way to think about the maturity of pen tests, right? Because, and, and, and by the way, it's it's not unlike the different skill sets you'll see in attackers, right? Because you have, you have script kitties and, you know, you have... To, automated scan you know automated bots and whatnot attacking you um but i think at least my observation is there's not a lot of recognition that there is a difference in capability 
between uh, different kinds of pen testers and different kinds of engagements of pen tests, right? And, and so it is very different if you subscribe to a pen test, which is, you know, kind of a full spectrum attack which, where everything is on the table versus, you know, a pen test, which we often see where it's, you know, the scope of the test is very defined. It's, you know, you draw a box for your, you know, you can, you can attack this particular thing, which is in a lab between the hours of, you know, whatever right. and whatever, and you can't go outside that IP range and you can't fish and you can't. Which, of course, a real attacker would not have any of those constraints. Right. You can't do anything that would be a denial of service mm -hmm. or, or potentially a denial of service, you know, and on and on and on. And then you call that a pen test, right? And Which, in my mind, I think doesn't really do you a great service. I would much rather find those problems under a controlled, you know, red team situation than let an attacker find them. Right. Um, you know, I get that that is a idealistic viewpoint uh, of being able to say pretty much nothing's off limits and uh, you know let's find it because there's a risk of business disruption but I'd rather have that business disruption under controlled circumstances yeah, well, I, th I think at the very least we have to be cognizant that when we do something like that it's not an actual you know we're, we're not actually simulating what an attacker would do right we're, we're, you know, we're simulating an, what an attacker would do under a very specific circumstance, which is probably not what would happen in the real world. It's kind of reminded me of, you know, let's use a sports ball analogy here for just a moment, which is shocking, I know. But if, wow. If the, I know. Whoa. I know. I know. Isn't that crazy? If the goal of football is to get, to get the ball to the end zone, great. Um, if that's really my goal, I have a whole bunch of ways to get there. But... And, and that's what attackers do. They have, that's my goal. I have infinite variations in the way I can get there, including leaving the stadium, coming in the back door, you know, uh, uh, getting a helicopter and flying over the opposing team, whatever. But right. football actually has all of these artificial constraints and rules to level the playing field, literally, uh, to force a certain avenue for that ball to go from point A to point B. And that is how I kind of think of pen testing. We are putting all these rules around it, uh, which then doesn't truly simulate what a true attack would do. Now, all that being said, I still think pen testing is very valuable and useful. You just have to understand the caveats and what it really does for you. But it really can get executives' attention. Uh, it seems yeah. to be, uh, it takes the, the esoteric and the theoretical and it makes it very visceral and real. Right. So some of the some of the ways I've seen pen tests work well and not well is you know a lot of again a lot of organizations perform them on a periodic basis and you know even even if they don't always find every potential or every avenue into the data or into the system um, you know taking taking the output of that test and looking for the underlying cause and, and going to address the underlying cause, not, you know, not saying, well, you know, we got in because this, there was a missing patch or we got in because there was a default password or we got in because whatever, 
right? And then you go and you change that password or you apply the patch. That's not the point. Yeah, that that points to a process failure somewhere. Right. How did it get to be that that circumstance arose and how can you fix that consistently across your environment? And, And then the other is that when you have that test again, if that same problem pops up, which, by the way, is not an uncommon thing, right? You know, you really need to think about what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's, that's not a great not a great look. You know, one thing I've seen, too, uh, that hasn't been a very positive thing in, in some of my previous experiences is when one group will use a pen test to politically beat up on another group in an organization. Yes. Uh, and, and try to score political points and further an agenda. And I think we all can very easily fall into the trap of, you know, the network team just isn't doing what they're supposed to do. They're not patching their stuff. They're not enabling the right tool set. Fine, let's go get a third party to validate it because they're neutral. Yeah, knowing and, knowing what the outcome is going to be ahead right, of time. absolutely. Yeah. And use that as a political stick to beat on the other team. And I get it. Sometimes that's the reality of the political situation. But... Uh, that's not the ideal you know sort of culture that I would want to build around security and working with teams but the reality sometimes that's just the way it is and sometimes we do have to go to a third party to say the things that we uh, are loath to say for political reasons you know I've been I've gotten to thinking a little bit and I think the the contra is also problematic too. So uh, we were talking with someone who you know the, the developers had you know often apparently contract their own pen tests, right? So I'm a developer of an application or what whatever, and so I'm going to go off and contract a, a third party assessment of my tool, and it just comes down to uh, to me, it seems like a conflict of interest. Now, maybe they do a great job and they hire a very thorough company. However, in my mind, back in my mind at least, there's an incentive for them to find someone who's going to do a te- you know kind of the meets minimum test, so to minimize their their work. It's also an incentive on the pen tester side. If your customer, if you know your customer is looking for minimal pain. So right. that they can ship their application, and you want to make money next next year from them. Yeah, you want repeat business, right? There might be a subtle implication to not necessarily be as aggressive. That's right. Uh, I've also seen, uh, you know, if you've got a situation where hey, you can't ship this into production until you pass this sort of testing. I've seen them, you know, kind of fake the environment to get past the testing which allows them to get their product shipped, which is what they're paid for, right, and what they're measured on, but really doesn't do anybody on the security side any good and long-term may cause pain. So we come back to a concept we've talked about a lot on the show, which is incentives driving undesired behavior. Yep, that's right. So, you know, all that being said, I think pendants are still very valuable I just think there's a ton of caveats around. And I remember back in the day, you know, maybe 10 years ago, the concept was 
pen test was the, the Cadillac of security testing. And I, I would like to think that we have matured past that to know that pen testing is one small aspect. I mean, I all things being equal, I would rather spend the money on a thorough security audit review from a third party with a full white box, open, open door, open the kimono, let them look at everything, and then give us recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, I, I, you know, go, kind of go back to something I said a little bit ago. I, I can't help but think that it would be helpful in some in some respect to be able to rate the you know the what what you're getting in a pen test. You want an energy list for for pen tests? No, not 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 that, <laughs> not that. I'm I'm thinking you know maybe it's a grading scale or a. You mean like a criticality? Um, a thoroughness. Okay. Like a confidence level? Yeah. May, right. Maybe that's the way to say it. Like we, we, you know, given the constraints around this test, you know, we feel that we have, you know, tested 30% of your environment or something. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly how it would manifest itself, but some, because again, not all pen tests are created equal. In my observation is in the pen test world, by the way, that pen tests in general, are becoming a commoditized service that's performed by, uh, you know, kind of the least cost resource possible because it is becoming a compliance mandate and everybody wants to do that crap as cheap as possible. Which is unfortunate, by the way, because really good pen testers are worth what they, oh, what they charge. I completely agree. Yeah. But again, I think there's a giant rift between the people you just mentioned yeah. who are really good and... You know the the people who are running Cali, running Cali, yeah. and you know and uh, um, you know core or whatever, and and that's all they know. You know right. they they're not there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of intelligence behind it. They are following they're effectively following a script, right? You know this environment has uh, you know first scan the ne- scan the network just a live update. Uh, Waze has given us a live route change, saving 32 minutes on our drive wow. due to a major accident on I-65 South. We are living in the future. That's that's right. Thank you, Waze. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, so yeah. Um, so the black helicopter is following us. Are now going to have to step it up. Yeah, because we're we're changing our, our direction. <laughs> that's right. We're also eight miles from Mammoth Cave National Park. I had no idea we were that close to Mammoth Cave. Sure. I just never did. So, um, so anyhow, I, you know, again, uh, pen tests becoming less, I think, less generally less valuable um, as a commoditized service, or at least the perception of it is. However, um, the problem is that in many, for, for many, uh, especially at the executive level, a pen test is a pen test is a pen test. Yeah. And so why would I go spend... You know, a uh, you know, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollars with this boutique pen testing company. When I can get this other company over here who will do it with, you know, offshore resources over the internet for uh, you know twelve thousand dollars or right. whatever. You know, it just why would I do that? Why would I? You know, why would I spend ten times more to get the same thing? And the point is, it's not the same thing. Yep. And but there's not a good 
there's no differentiator. How do you how do you know? Yeah. How do you how do you convey that you're not buying well, the same thing? When I was trying to sell pen tests as a security, as a as a sales engineer, one of the ways we would try to do is showing sample reports. You know, look at how thorough our reports are. But again, if you're talking at a very senior executive level, you're right. They they may not have a deep enough technical background or care enough to see that deep into comparing contrasting. Yeah, it's kind of like, it, I mean, this is a this is probably going to end up being a bad analogy, right? But when you buy insurance from an insurance company, you know they're rated A, B, C. You know they they have different ratings, and the ratings have different costs, but they have different risks associated with them. And and kind of intuitively, if the CFO goes to the CEO and says, "Oh yeah, we you know we we uh, we, we bought a, a you know a billion dollars in coverage from a a triple A rated insurance company uh, or that same C- CFO comes and says, Oh yeah, we bought a billion dollars of coverage from a B rated company. The CEO intuitively knows that it's different. Right. Right. You don't, you don't have, he doesn't have to think very deeply about, you know, okay, well, what are the differences between the two? He just knows that there's a difference and you're going to get less with, you know, or potentially less with the B-rated than with the AAA. Maybe. I mean, just to kind of nitpick your analogy for a, for a second there, those are credit ratings of the credit worthiness, not necessarily the customer uh, service capability. No, I, I know. I yeah. know. But at the end of the day, the, what you're buying with insurance is you want them to be able to pay out if you... As long as they'll actually pay out. Right. That's right. <laughs> to go back to our cyber insurance story from last week. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, of course, if you wanted to subjectively uh, rate pen test companies, there's so many caveats you could come in and say, well, the customer the customer only wanted X. We tried to sell them on Y, but they didn't have the budget for it. And, you know, X is better than nothing. You know, so there's so many different ways to kind of get into that. Not everybody could buy a Cadillac. Some people have to buy the Yugo. To, and, and the Yugo gets them where they need to go. So it's a tough, tough thing to, to measure. Uh, I think, you know, at the end of the day, having a knowledgeable, experienced person helping to make the decision as to what type of pen tester to hire is your best bet. But, again, that's non-trivial. Yeah, fair enough. Anything more to say on that? Uh, no, I mean, unless you do. Okay. All right, so the next thing we wanted to talk about are a couple of stories the first one is a vehicle stopped on shoulder ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll mute my my ways here. Sorry. There we go. It comes from uh, the the National Trial Lawyers Association, nationaltriallawyers.org. It's a good good read, by the way. Yeah, it's exciting. Riveting, riveting. In fact, so the title is Seventh Circuit Court Grants Standing to Neiman Marcus State of Breach Plaintiffs." Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively long article, but uh, basically, the the net of it is that a the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has approved the plaint, plaintiff standing in a case against Neiman Marcus for prospective financial losses associated from the data breach. So, so not actual losses that have been noted yet, right? Prospective losses. 
and um, you know, at the very end of the article, in the court's decision, they make the comment, why else would hackers break into a store's database and steal consumers' private information, i.e., you know, there, obviously there's an intent to harm, but apparently, uh, according to the article, there were, I believe, only 9,100 or 9,200 confirmed cases out, uh, of fraud out of the... Uh, roughly 350,000 people's data who was stolen. No, my question is, was that fraud that was noted uh, credit card fraud, in which case it's really not the end user's liability anyway? Uh, they, they don't actually say that. I, I mean, yeah. It's not It's not very clear. Um, so so apparently, it, just to recap, there's a little little more data uh, than that we've had in the past, than we've had in the past. So uh, we did talk about Neiman Marcus. It 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 popped right after Target, and was um, you know kind of not not a, a huge story at the time. There wasn't a lot of detail, but apparently, uh, what what happened was uh, there was some type of a central system that all of their cash registers connected back to, and the cash register or this uh, central management system was pushed out malware. To the cash registers every night, and it was deleted. Deleted itself. I'm not. It's not clear if it deleted itself or something else deleted it. Uh, but in the process, apparently, allegedly, it created something like sixty thousand malware alerts. Now, what specifically a malware alert is in this context is not very clear. Uh, but one of the one of the factors or contributing factors in this decision appears to be that Neiman Marcus did not pursue or investigate these alerts that were happening during the time period. And we don't we don't know what these alerts are. We don't know if it's like AV alerts. We don't know if it's just log files. We don't know if it's after the fact that they went back and found evidence. Uh, you know, the whole signal and the noise problem. Uh, so it is a little odd uh, to, to, to know exactly what happened there or didn't happen. But 60,000 ignored alerts is, is one of the contributing factors that they're alleging. Yeah, and and, uh, and so uh, apparently the, the data was being consolidated and then exfiltrated through a VPN. Again, not a lot of detail on, you know, where the was the VPN from the endpoint, the endpoint uh, registers or the central system. No context on that. But um, the, the, the thing to me that struck me with this story is that it's more and more turning any kind of database of personal information that an organization might store into a significant liability. Sure. Well, to me, I'm finding it interesting that they've, they've basically held standing that even though no actual fraud has occurred yet, people can sue for the perspective of fraud. Um, and I'm sure those who are, who are victims say this makes sense. But to me, uh, certainly I'm not a lawyer, but wow, you know, I, there's no actual harm being shown yet. Uh, I'm not sure how they would figure out damages or understand, you know, the costs involved. But you're right on your point, too, that now it's starting to become more and more of a liability to maintain customer data and credit card data. So I'm wondering if companies are going to start moving to, you know, you can't store that data. Right, you got to re-enter it every time, which is now going to make a little more friction in the transaction, uh, or you know, tokenize everything, or you know, 
whatever. Um, because it is, it is starting to become a liability, like you said, to have that data. Yeah, and so I just want to be clear, right? The the the, the ruling here was to overturn a, uh, a, 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 I believe there was a previous court that dismissed the case, and so this this decision basically overturned the dismissal. So it's not a decision in favor of the plaintiffs. It, it basically is a decision saying that the, the plaintiffs have a standing even though they have not incurred any damages. So normally you would, you would need to, in order to have standing, in order to sue someone, you would have to have incurred a loss. Otherwise, you know, what are you suing for? Right. And, and so, in, in this, what's what's kind of novel in this particular situation is, you know, we we had three hundred fifty thousand people whose data was stolen. Uh, only a, a small fraction of them apparently was actually used. However, the entire group um, are able to go in uh, in the court, file, you know, try to recover damages that have not yet occurred. Which really is going to be interesting case law and dramatically changes the risk equation for retailers. Yeah. In my mind. Yep. Depending on how this goes, right? It could still go to court and, and the actual trial, that judge goes, now, now, sorry, go away. Or, you know, who knows, right? This may still end up as nothing. But, and this could also be something, you know, where lawyers are just trying to spin up class actions for, you know, income generation. The, the article says that if nothing else... It's going to cause a lot more. Uh, it's going to cause a lot more lawsuits for breached companies because now, you know, right right now, basically, the the de facto position is if you know if, if uh, you know, let, let's just pick on OPM, right, right. Um, if you can't, if the OPM uh, impacted parties can't prove that they were damaged in some material way, they couldn't go and sue. That if they were to file the papers, the defendant could very easily get that, you know, get get that case canceled or, or, or mm-hmm. rejected because there was no standing. The the, the lit, uh, yeah, plaintiffs had no standing to sue. Uh, but now, you know, if this continues on the trajectory it's on, those plaintiffs have standing, and so now you know, potentially there's going to be a lot more uh, lawsuits. And as I understand, they have standing because the assumption is something will happen. Right. Right. Which is weird law. Right. Why? Well, I mean, the, basically, the judge said, "Why else would they? You know, why else would an attacker steal the data if they if there was no intent to use the data for malicious purposes?" But I, I'd be curious, statistically, of all the breaches we've seen, how much of that data is ever actually used fraudulently yeah. over a one, two, three-year period? It's hard to say. It's hard, very, very difficult to say. Um, you know, and from, if it's credit card data, right? You, you know, not that it's not important, but it's not the individual's liability. It's their it's, they have the hassle, yes, but it's not their financial liability. It becomes the you know the banks and the issuers and everybody else, but not the endpoint user. Right. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, I, I, I there's really there's no stats that I'm aware of. About that, yeah. Um, 
But I, I'll tell you, that, that actually kind of dovetails into the next story. Mm-hmm. Which, I know, I kind of planned it that way. Uh, we did a great job. That's called podcasting professionalism. You did a great job. Thanks. Nice job. So, the, the next story we have is uh, is from Krebs and Security, and the title is Bidding for Breaches, Redefining Targeted Attacks. And uh, in, in this article, Brian talks about a couple of online forums, uh, which he describes as the eBay for data breaches. And, and basically, it's a marketplace where a uh, somebody who wants access to data or systems or what have you can you know, can go on to this forum and kind of bid it out say you know I want uh, I want plans for the joint strike fighter right or whatever mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and and they pair you up with someone who has the ability or the interest to go and uh, and retrieve that for you and then get paid for you know, in, in kind for the merchandise that they provide you, and, uh, it, and the point here is that um, you know we're, we're. I think this is kind of refining. You know, this is creating a market where the attackers are becoming highly refined in their tactics, and you know, kind of everybody now, or you know, quote everybody, right, has the has the ability to leverage those deep skills in order to attack, you know, any kind of any organization at large. Or have a pre-existing, uh, you know, foothold in that organization. Yes, yes. And that's, it's uh, it's a little subtle in here, but, but that is one of the points they bring up that, uh, you know, a lot of these, or at least in some instances, um, the, 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 the people who are bidding on the work already have compromised systems or have already stolen the data. Right. And and so they're just you know they're just monetizing the you know what they've already done. And this is this is something that's that's kind of been brewing for a while. If you think about it in the context of like a botnet, right? Botnets are becoming less and less used for things like spam and DDoS, and and they kind of says, well, what are they being used for? <laughs> and uh, and and so um, I think the, the implication here is, if you have a if you have a, a bot that's kind of spread far and wide, you can use some segment of it for DDoS, some segment of it for spam, and the rest of it you can look and see. Oh, I got, uh, you know, I have endpoints within. You know, bank networks and endpoints within government networks and endpoints within, and, and then you can go troll these these forums and monetize, you know, yep. the, the the presence that you've established in those organizations. So it's abstracting out the actual, you know, attacking and exploitation from the people who may be leveraging whatever access or, or data that is being found there. Right. Um, right. You know, and, and again, once again, I think starts to water down the, this attack can only be done by a nation state. Well, not true. Right. <laughs> right. Not, not true. Now, it may be ultimately paid for by a nation state, uh, but it could be Bob the hacker in his basement uh, who's built this botnet and then starts selling it off to the highest bidder. Yeah, and they, they uh, in, in this article, he references this person nicknamed the king who, uh, who, is suspected to be someone working for the Chinese government 
looking to steal uh, you know, steal data. And the reason they, they, they believe that is that he, or I guess she, uh, pays very well, doesn't haggle over price, and, uh, you know, and... Pays timely. Pays on time and, uh, and reliably. And appears to be very active in buying up all right. sorts of data. Right. So, you know, has a has a, a pretty significant source of funds and need for the data that he's uh, he's purchasing. So, um, so it's kind of an interesting spin on you know the, the the long standing discussion that you know the Chinese government is you know is out, has these legions of hackers, which you know maybe that is the case, maybe it's not. But you know now I think the point is that those kind of deep hacking tactics are again available for purchase by whoever makes you speculate a bit you know what if the chinese government are just assembling a massive dossier and could do something really extraordinary with all that data in a very short period of time yeah yeah and and there's a there's a they kind of kind of dance around it a little bit but they they point out that much like we talked about in the Neiman Marcus story before, there's a, a an absolute glut of databases being stolen, and apparently nothing being done with them. Nothing, nothing tactile that we can put our fingers on. Um, and, I mean, obviously, there is, in some cases, there is, but in many cases, you know, they're not. You know, when when the OPM data was, was stolen, you know, they're not. People aren't running around opening, you know, trying to get mortgages on, on fraudulent mortgages. We don't know what is happening with the data. And Well, it's interesting, too, because then you think, well, okay, if there's this much data floating around on so many accounts, does that dilute the value of any one account? And are people hoarding this, you know, speculating that the value will go back up? Are they, I don't know, It's it is weird that we're not seeing more mass uh, exploitation of, of all this leaked data. So, so one of the, I mean, a, a potential explanation, and I'm not saying this is a, a, you know, a robust explanation. However, they, they talk a little bit about uh, some of the, some of the methodology and that there's implications, maybe not direct assertions, but implications that some of the, some of the people here on this on these forums have the ability to uh, identify spear phishing targets or people who are ripe for being extorted or who might be sympathetic to your cause. And I do wonder that if a lot of that data that's being stolen can actually be used by those criminals to create a graph to much more yeah the, the data is only step one right it's in, it's in a bigger in a bigger con plan yeah it's it's yeah. it's to help it's to help them in their business models basically you know they, it's like kind of like the, the the crazy story about the tart you know target sending the you know the the baby the newborn stuff to the to the teenage girl right and the dad gets angry well you know they have all that data they're analyzing it and to an extent I wonder if you know, on the criminal side, this is an opportunity for them to gather a lot of information and figure out, okay, if I wanted to attack, you know, Acme, 
how would I, you know, what are the different ways in which I could do that? Now well, I know. We're also attributing a lot more coordination and centralization that made it. But when you look at these forms that the story is talking about, that sort of stuff becomes a little more viable. For instance, right. people pop up and say, okay, I really want to spearfish against Bank of America. Right. And can, who can help me uh, hit these executives at Bank of America? That's right. And, okay, does anybody know any insiders at Bank of America who are sympathetic to to the hacking cause or whatever it may be? Uh, which now does start to strong. Now, the challenge is these forms, and it's covered pretty extensively in the article, uh, are very exclusive and require a great deal of vetting, uh, which minimizes the ability for broad application across all sorts of uh, nefarious groups. So... By necessity, they are, uh, you know, very, very underground, very hidden, uh, don't last long once they get infiltrated. Uh, so I wonder how effective these sorts of centralization uh, techniques and efforts work. Uh, well, oh, you know, since they have to keep, term, yeah, because right. they have to keep moving and, and such. And I apologize, we're we're kind of in heavy traffic in Nashville right now, so I'm a little it's, multitasking here. It's certainly a headwind. I mean, in, in they points out that Enigma was only online for a couple of months and then the administrator shut it down because they feared that uh, that it had been infiltrated, which actually had been. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they did a, um, I think that's a, a legitimate concern, although I, I would imagine that they'll, you know, that they can figure out how to keep moving around. I mean, there's apparently a lot of money in this. Yeah, of course. And that's, ultimately, there's always going to be money in it, and that's always going to drive this behavior. Uh, it's it's just interesting because the more effective a centralized uh, kind of work-share site is for these sorts of things, the more likely it is to be infiltrated. Yeah. And, then, you know, the, the, the thing that strikes me is this is a, just another example of the industrialization, I think, or the, you know, the the commercialization, the mechanization, however you want to phrase it, of more advanced attacks. Mm -hmm. And and so it's not it's not all these various attackers off trying to figure this out on their own. They're refining their techniques. You know, um, there's there's pockets and they're I'm right. I'm kind of envisioning you like office buildings with receptionists and water coolers and <laughs> things and you know, and instead of doing productive things, they're, you know, they're they're sending out phishing emails. Which, by the way, uh, apparently, in reference in this article, it's it's very common for the people who are uh, you know, tagged or, or charged with going after and collecting whatever the prize is. Uh, the, the most effective ones apparently are the the social engineers and the fishers. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Which yeah, it shouldn't surprise anybody, but um, you know, kind of kind of points to you know, the the direction I think of, of maybe where we should be thinking. Yeah, certainly. Uh, the other thing I I think about when when we talk about this article is so right now we just had President of the U.S. meet with in essence the president of China, and they came to a cyber security agreement of we're not going to hack each other. Well, is it truly hacking if China? through a third-party corporation funded by a third-party inside of a third-party in China goes on one of these forms and buys data? Did they do the hacking? Or did they just consume it? 
It's a great point. There's especially, so many, yeah, there's so many plausible deniability options here. Especially if China buy, you know, if, if China is uh, outsourcing to an Eastern European right hacking group, you know. And everybody says, you know, only nation state level resources could could achieve X, Y, Z. Well, first of all, I don't buy that to begin with. But second of all, this is a way for nation state funding to flow into the underground hacking community. Right. And, and make it profitable for these folks to build a skill set uh, full-time to the level of a quote-unquote nation-state um, based on this sort of, you know, in essence, it's kind of like funding terrorists, right? It's, it's they're, they're pumping money into these groups and making it profitable for them to do these types of activities. Uh, again, uh, speculating, but uh, I think it's fairly safe speculation uh, and shows how it's very easy for a nation state, including uh, the United States, to uh, very easily outsource their targeted attacks. Yeah, and I, and I think it also points to the fact that you know attribution is hard and is getting harder. Yeah, and uh, you know it's just another in my in my mind it's another brick in the wall that says uh, assuming that these attacks are originating or emanating from governments is is really a fool's errand. Uh, but at the same time, I think the other thing it says is our job is getting exceptionally more hard or more difficult, right? It's because the, the, the attackers are heavily financially incented to refine their tactics because they're, they're, these are turning into enterprises and, you know, they're being innovative and, you know, just think about the average dot com and how innovative they are and think about that context applied to hacking. Yep. And here we are. <laughs> so Yay, happy Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> um but I, I just think it, it means that we really have to start thinking you know, I don't mean to be a downer, right? But I think we have to start thinking about that context because that is the world I mean that that is in place now and it's probably going to get more and more in that vein and how you know what does that mean for us yeah. what does it mean for our organization what do we what do we do in response so uh, the last story we had was a follow-up from a couple of probably a couple of months ago Morgan Stanley had a uh, uh, had some of their data uh, of customers of theirs show up on an online forum for sale and in the ensuing investigation, they found that one of their employees, a person named Galen Marsh, had uh, had had actually accessed the record, all of the records, seven hundred thirty thousand customer records, and exfiltrated that to his home computer because apparently he was in the process of trying to find a new job, and in the uh, in uh, allegedly, and I think this intuitively makes sense. In the world of financial analysts, you, you know, you kind of are, your value is partly derived from the network of customers that you bring with you mm -hmm. when you go to another firm. Well, that applies to almost all aspects of sales. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, so that was, you know, valuable to him. But apparently what happened in, through some as yet unknown means, some of the data that he, I, I you know, I guess stole ended up on a, on a forum for sale now he still admits that he did not post that data for sale uh, however he has pleaded guilty 
uh, he's accepted a plea deal in, uh, in as part of the plea deal, he's he's agreed to accept any prison sentence up to 37 months. Well, I think it said he won't appeal. Well, he won't appeal. That's yeah. right. He won't appeal. Yeah. Right. Uh, which, which, I guess, implicitly means that he's... It's an odd odd number, 37 months. I wonder where how you achieve that I, I negotiation. Know. Yeah. But... And, but he pled guilty to taking a copy of the data, not right. not not sharing it. Correct. Yeah. He's he still he still disputes that he which went to well, tried to sell it again. Intuitively makes sense if all the other assumptions are true that he was looking for another job. Wanted it, it doesn't help him to leak his customer data. Um, right. And we know there's plenty of malware out there that is its whole purpose in life is to monitor for data like this and snag it. So, who knows? It's plausible that he ran afoul of some malware that grabbed copies of this stuff. But it's, it's interesting, though. I would have thought, and, you know, maybe I'm overthinking this, but I would have Never. thought... You? That, I know. That, that some, some, you know, the, the, some law enforcement agency, I don't know, somebody would have analyzed his computer. Nah. <laughs> you know, so I I assume that happened. He installed Windows 10 and, you know, everything was fine. <laughs> true there's your problem <laughs> so uh so yeah um just wanted to wanted to throw that in as a follow-up yeah um you know not, still no still no definitive answer on how it got out for sale but he did admit to to doing it uh, you know i think based on you know how, how this came to be it was pretty clear that he did do it i i would be surprised if he if he did admitted or uh, chose a different path um, but, you know, I think that, again, as we talked about when the story originally came up, it kind of points back to, yet again, if you have a big mountain of customer data, you, you really need to think about how you're going to protect that and, uh, and, and monitor it. So in, in this particular case, uh, I think the thing that helped Morgan Stanley a little bit is that they uh, they were able to go back and and see that this guy ran queries right and so they were you know able to pretty quickly track down i'm assuming it was quickly i, I don't know for sure who specifically you know took the data and uh and there you go which we we often find it's it's trivial for folks after the fact not trivial but Apparently easy after the fact to go recre- recreate and reconstruct what happened, but it's really tough for people to detect it at the time, and yeah. you know detect it because of that activity. Yeah, at the same time though, I I have to tell you, it, now again, everybody's every company is different, and you know whatever. Everybody's a precious snowflake, right? But if you have, you know, if, if I, I would say given what we talked about earlier, you know, your customer data, if you are financial, you know, if you're, if you're a, uh, if you have a, a, a team of financial advisors, one of the really key bits of data that you have or your, your key database is your customer list. Right. And it seems like, you know, that's, there's probably no good reason for anyone to pull, you know, to run a query of all of your customers. And, and so I think there's an opportunity there to look at some business rules to say, okay, you know, the average 
analyst should never look at more than, let's say, five. I don't know. I don't know what the right number right. is, right? But let's say five records in a day. And, you know, maybe if they do six, it, you know, it, it flags. But if they do ten, that triggers, you know, somebody to go and, you know, and, and uh, br- bring them into the room with the, <laughs> the hanging light over them. Right? right. No cameras. Right. Padded walls for sound editing. And the hose. Right. Yes. So, anyway. So, basically your basement. But, yeah. yeah. I understand. Well, um, I mean. But here's the thing. In, in a microcosm, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when you start scaling it up to enterprise-wide, creating those sorts of data access rules is non-trivial. And you have to really understand your business really well. You have to really understand uh, how people do things. And it's a lot easier to just say, hey, you know what? Uh, these financial analysts need access to this data. Here you go. Have a nice day. And then not worry about it again. So it, it takes time and effort and creativity to start to limit the access in such a way that still allows folks to do their job. Because uh, as soon as security throws something in there that gets in the way of a financial analyst, who in many ways is you know the, the, the factory floor for Morgan Stanley to make money, uh, security is going to lose that conversation most likely. Good point. It's a very good point. So it's... You got to be careful. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I'm saying it's non—it's non-trivial, uh, but it's important. That's right. So, uh, so I think that is, uh, I guess, the end of our our, our uh, car car cast, I guess we'll call it, right? <laughs> our road trip podcast. Yeah. From uh, on the way home from DerbyCon. Yep. And uh, it's good. It's, it's a different type of uh, style. I don't. I can't look at porn in the background while we're recording. I, I can't. Uh, I can't reference notes. It's very extemporous. Ext- extemp- I can't even talk. Extemporaneous. There you is go. That what you're trying That's to say? what I'm trying to say. Okay. I couldn't. I couldn't spell check on that. Should, should I get my mom to help you? Uh, you know, she's not been as helpful lately. <laughs> uh, by, by the way, someone's mom just uh, tweeted you back. <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, Gwen Koontz, in fact. And what did she say? She uh, she wants she wants to know why why you would say that, that she plays games with you. <laughs> well, because clearly it's true. Uh huh. I don't know. I don't yeah. even know who we're talking about. I have uh, no idea. Dennis Koontz's mom. You were. You oh were... yes, 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 yes. Yeah. <sighs> oh, there you go. So anyhow, uh, thanks. Yeah, the end of the show on that awkward note. <laughs> thanks. Thank you for listening. Uh, just a reminder: if you uh, if you're if you like the show, give us some love on iTunes. Uh, if you have any questions or recommendations, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. If you uh, if, if you want to find links to the stories we talked about today, check our show notes on www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at defensivesec. Follow Mr. Khaled on Twitter at lurg. Me on Twitter at malicious link and with that we'll talk again next week thanks everybody have a great week it's a podcast god damn it that's all I am to you I'm just your podcast monkey yeah. it's the car cast it is the car cast so are, are we live or are we memorex uh we are live. Okay.
However, for others, it's recorded. It's very confusing. It kind of is. Except for except for a passenger. We have a passenger. He's getting right. a live view. Bye bye. Bye bye now. Bye bye. 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 Bye bye.